And I'm glad we stood up on that, because that's what the song said, right? It said, I, I rise. I, I was trying to debate whether when it says throw up your hands if I was going to do that. But we're Lutherans. We can't do it unless everybody's doing it. It's been a long time. We can all do it, yeah. It's been a long time since my days in the Pentecostal church. But anyway, that was nice. Thank you again, band. Well, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's all in how you say it. It's in how you say it. See what I did there? Uh, have you ever heard that kind of expert advice before? Communication specialists will warn you not to naively put so much stock in exactly what you say, that is, focusing in on the particular words that you choose. Words are important, but it's with all those non-verbals, like standing up, right, that most of us miss the picture or we mess things up. Things like facial expression, posture, hand gestures, your body language. A difference in tone of voice, for example, could make a huge difference in what message actually is getting across to the hearer. The classic case in point, maybe you've heard it before, but it's with those three words, I love you. If I were to say it just like that, I love you, they convey one thing, but if I were to shift my inflection a bit there, still using those three exact same words, you can get, I love you. <laughs> you see, there's quite a difference in what we, what we mean. A different meaning follows from that uh, intonation. And incidentally, I would not advise adopting that latter tone of voice for I love you. Um, for example, gentlemen, if you're working on a wedding proposal, <laughs> I know someone here who is. Uh, you might want to first rehearse your tone of voice as well as your other nonverbals. When we look at our gospel lesson today from Luke 15, I want you to catch a similar thing going on there. There we read the following to set the stage. Quote, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Unquote. The tax collectors and sinners, uh-oh, uh, you have already on your hands the beginning of some kind of situation about to happen. And now, if this scene were part of, say, a melodrama, anybody been one of those melodramas uh, today, how would the straggling lot of riffraff be welcomed, do you think, these tax collectors and sinners? Would they garner applause as they arrive on the scene, or would they elicit boos and hisses from the audience? And by the way, these tax collectors that I'm talking about here, these were the guys, the very same guys, fellow Jews, mind you, who would not only collect your money. Now, we might know some IRS agents, but they take our money and give it to our own nation. But these Jews at the time, the tax collectors, would forward your money, your hard-earned money, onto a foreign power Caesar. There's some boos and hisses there that the Israelites would have offered. And while these tax collectors were at it, they had special permission. Many of these opportunistic tax collectors would also tack on a little surcharge, some creative processing fee that you see, um, to further pad their own pockets. So these were not popular people back then, tax collectors and sinners, 
uh, to say the very least. Uh, verse 2 says, you probably saw this coming, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. I think we can count that as more of a boo rather than an applause, right? And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How do you think they said that? Was it with that kind of intonation? Now, that word grumbled there is a good clue of what tone of voice they most likely employed. It's the same word that is variously translated murmured, muttered, complained. You get the idea. It's that whine that you heard ad nauseum from the back seat during your long car drive to that remote vacation spot this summer, right? When are we going to be there? Are we there yet? We also find the Hebrew equivalent of this word murmur in the Old Testament used, for example, in Numbers 16 to describe what those factions of grumbling Israelites were doing in rebellion against Moses. After a critical level of grumbling was achieved by those saying things like they wish they had never even left Egypt. God had just had enough. So God, being God, opened the earth and swallowed up the chief complainers and all their family and conspirators. Then he closed the earth up over these grumblers who were never to be heard of again. Well, that's certainly one way to officially or efficiently deal with these grumblers, and that is if you are God. Well, Jesus is God, God in the flesh. And having already in Luke's gospel displayed his sovereign command over nature, wind, waves, evil spirits even, and disease, Jesus could have instantly buried these complaining scribes and Pharisees right there on the spot. Could have summoned a sinkhole if he wanted to. Instead, though, our Lord Jesus chose to exercise his long-suffering patience and compassion for, as he states later in Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost from Luke 19. This lost includes not only those marginalized, like the tax collectors and the sinners who are always being reminded of their many sins, but it includes as well, the lost here, all those who are righteous in their own eyes, those who could not yet see their own lost condition and their need, therefore, for the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. In fact, it is to the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees that Jesus directs all the parables we find in Luke chapter 15 today. All of these parables go on to petition the hearer to repent and rejoice with the heavenly angels over every single soul who does humbly repent of their sin before the Lord. Reaching the lost when the lost don't even know they're lost. That's a tough audience. But Jesus has compassion even for them. So instead of opening up the earth in judgment then, Jesus opens his mouth out of compassion and begins to patiently instruct even his naysayers. The hope is that, like the tax collectors and sinners, the scribes and Pharisees would also draw near to Jesus and begin to hear his words full of grace and truth. 
the parables that Jesus opens his mouth to speak are actually three in number. Two of these are part of today's gospel reading that we heard. But that third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, ever heard about that one? It's arguably the most famous parable in the whole Bible. We've already visited that text, however, back in the Lenten season. But nevertheless, it still warrants an honorable mention here today, and so we'll, we'll look at that as well. Starting with the first parable, then, the lost sheep. What man of you, asks Jesus of the scribes and Pharisees there, having 100 sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it. And with that probing question, Jesus deliberately, I believe, puts those Jewish leaders, the shepherds of Israel, on the spot in front of everyone there. The more candid reply, if there was nobody actually eavesdropping in on this, that the scribes and Pharisees would probably have made could have gone something like, I certainly wouldn't leave the 99 well-behaved sheep in the open country to go track down one measly, wayward stray. Free dinner for the wolves tonight, as far as I'm concerned. If this sheep is so bent on its freedom, at least it'll keep those carnivores away from us one more night. But of course, these leaders couldn't openly talk like that very well, could they? In public, they had to maintain rather a caring protective image lest they lose the people's trust and confidence as their spiritual leaders. Even if they were to actually scour the countryside for just one sheep, it's not likely, had they found it, that they would have hoisted that one to 200 pound ewe and the male sheep were even heavier, sometimes 300 pounds, up on their shoulders and skipped back to camp rejoicing. And that's kind of how Jesus seems to be describing it. But in reality, your average shepherd, already feeling put out, would more likely have vented his anger by curse and crook all the way back to the 99 and then locked up that guilty sheep in solitary confinement for the night so it's not getting out again. So, no, when Jesus conjures this image of the caring shepherd, he was hardly describing the self-serving spiritual shepherds of Israel in his day. He was, though, in fact, describing himself as prophesied in our Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 34. Quote, I myself, the Lord says, will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Unquote. Jesus indeed is the good shepherd. So then, there, then there's this woman and her ten coins in the second parable. The poor back in those days had dirt floors, and this, of course, was long before the metal detectors they see it on the beach. So a flat coin in the dirt was tantamount to searching for a needle in a haystack. So this woman would have practically had to sweep deep and exhaustively to finally uncover that lost coin. Why didn't she just wait till daylight, a practical neighbor might ask her, instead of conducting this strenuous search by lamplight? And does she really expect all her friends, who are likely in bed already, to care so much as to come rushing over to party with her at the drop of a dime? Pardon the pun. In her defense, 
the woman's one coin was really worth much more than one thin dime as we know it. A Greek drachma, which is the word here, was equivalent to a Roman denarius, which is about a whole day's wage. So that's not pocket change for which this woman was searching so diligently. In fact, if you follow these three parables in Luke 15, one after another, you discover that with each passing parable, the value of the lost item mentioned in there goes up in relative value. Uh, one one-hundredth of a flock. The next one-tenth of a household savings. And finally, one out of two sons gets lost. So you find out they're both actually lost in their own way. Whereas I mentioned that the parable of the lost son, as it is also sometimes called, would get honorable mention. Here's where I get to mention it now. And by way of contrasting it, and how it ends, as compared with the previous two other um, lost parables, both the lost sheep and the lost coin parables, and in a joyous celebration. They both have that eureka, I found it moment. And I love the seemingly over-the-top celebration that Jesus describes as actually warranted. Quote, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. From verse 7. And that verse, of course, is aimed squarely at the scribes and Pharisees because as they see it, they're the 99 who supposedly have no need for repentance. They're self-righteous. But just having such a conceited view of oneself is itself something which you already need to repent of. In reality, there are no 99 righteous persons, no matter where you look, um, people who don't need any repentance repentance whatsoever. No, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. By contrast, it's not the parable of the lost son. It's not that it's missing that element of the over-top over top celebration. It certainly does have its own big celebration recorded, of course, um, when the son returns home. But Jesus doesn't end this parable of the lost son on that same celebratory note on which the two other parables do end. No, Jesus ends the parable of the lost son on very much a more sour note, really. There's this unique epilogue added to this third and last parable in which the older son is actually the one who sounds the sour note. The older son is a sour puss because, as you might recall, He's jealous over all the attention his wayward brother is receiving now that Junior's returned home. This older brother is muttering to himself, grumbling. My younger brother doesn't deserve all this fanfare. If anyone deserves such a blowout, it's me for staying around, Dad, and working so hard all this time. So continuing in this epilogue, the father of the two sons then leaves the party in the house to go outside and personally invite in his older son who is refusing to go in and participate in the joy being spilt over his little brother's return in repentance. And that's where a lack of repentance over one's own sin leaves a person. It leaves you outside. It leaves you grumbling and resentful. This older brother 
was indeed lost too, only he didn't know it. And we're talking here, the Pharisees in a similar situation. And that describes the scribe as well. And that may be somebody that you know and love today. It could be somebody to whom you are related. It may even be you and me at some times. And by the way, coming to church and confessing your sins, as we just did, is a good cure for all this. Martin Luther's number one of the 95 theses that he posted states, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. It wasn't a one and done type thing. And it's it's comforting to know that this true repentance is only the gracious work of our triune God in our lives, in our midst. Citing his own limitations as a sinner, Luther also wrote this in his small catechism, quote, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified me, and kept me in the truth faith. The Holy Spirit. And now about the Father, also working, Jesus once told the Galilean crowds, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together to produce the joyous fruit of repentance in you and in me, and to stop our grumbling as well. I think it's worth pointing out, too, that if you take the grumble out of that first complaint verbalized by the scribes and the Pharisees, it really changes the message, just like those three words, I love you. Listen again to our gospel lesson, verse 2, where we hear that. But now, since Jesus, Jesus takes the grumble out of it, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Doesn't that make a big difference? Far from being something a Pharisee might complain about, now, with a different set of inflections or nonverbals, this sounds like a most wonderful invitation to the Lord's table, doesn't it? For us to be received and to receive in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Jesus undergirds this with some real body language. Our Lord welcomes us and gives us his real body and gives us his real blood for the real forgiveness of all our sins. Now, nothing to grumble about that, is there? Amen. And now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.